Did you know that 85% of your engine wear occurs at startup? Yes, that is correct. And this is where Lower the Friction comes in by putting a protective lubricating barrier on all moving parts. This now gives you full-time protection to make your engine last longer, run smoother, give you better performance, and improve fuel economy. People across the country are reporting some very exciting results. Go to LowerTheFriction.com, place your order, and enter in promo code SOS to get 5% off of your order. That's LowerTheFriction.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to the weekly Secrets of Saturn livestream. I am Jason Lindgren, your host. We've got a great packed house this week. Uh, let's start with our new person stepping in. That would be Mr. Mark Bloom from England. Mark, say hello to everyone out there. Hi, hello. <laughs> Coming all the way from the United Kingdom. Mark, why don't you give a little bit about yourself before we uh, bring in everyone else? Uh, okay. Um, so as Jason said, I'm from Liverpool, England. Um, I'm uh, 28 years old. I'm one of them millennials. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, a lot of what uh, we're going to be talking about tonight I've received from uh, lecturers at university, which I know some people can be a bit uh, sceptical about the education system, and understandably so. Um but the the, inf the the information I have has actually now been removed from the curriculum entirely, and all of my lecturers were also uh, made redundant <laughs> or forced to the, to leave uh, through sort of dirty tactics. Like one got accused of being sexist, that sort of thing. He, he put out an email saying, "Would anyone like to come forward and uh, and suggest that?" this person has marked them down based on their gender and um it didn't work because the female members of staff stood up for them and it was blatant nonsense but this is what they were trying to do because making someone redundant meant that um mark hold that thought live. <laughs> hold that thought d live is working and everybody is streaming and nothing else is. So why is YouTube? Yeah, you, YouTube's YouTube's not streaming. YouTube's being YouTube. All right, let me see what the hell is pro the problem here. YouTube was working for me. Well, I had my roundabout with YouTube today. <laughs> They're like, oh, that pro guy? Yeah, fuck you. <laughs> six hours of my life. <laughs> but DLive is hearing us. So DLive, we apologize for making you sit through this because i gotta fix this real quick if it's even possible no youtube is okay jason i was even listening to the song earlier when it started so i know no you heard it's working because you heard the feed because everyone in the chat saying no 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 nothing nothing That's what yeah I'm it's at. not happening i'm looking at the chat right now and everyone's saying it's fine maybe you guys are looking at the wrong link i'm looking at secrets of saturn 149 people watching february 24th signs and simples and everyone's saying all good yes all good here you're perfectly youtube's fine it's fine it's fine youtube's good oh, i'm on we're uh, good 56 february 24 2021 signs and symbols 43 waiting weird you guys are on the wrong link come and join us over here in the real world guys wow. all right someone pick me a new link Re reality gotta, time yeah i need a new yeah. link because I'm, I'm doing it here you guys yeah it's I, a good I thing i came to right right i pulled this from the social media link yeah, so hey guys, I, guys. yeah, I got nothing playing on my link here either. So. I just sent you the okay, chat. Don't so worry. Everyone is hearing everything we're saying. I promise. Even though we're <laughs> streaming, 
oh, this is very odd because Restream says everything's working and online. And that says it's empty right now when I try to hit your link. That's so weird. But on my oh. YouTube thingy-majiggy, it says no data. It's because you created two links probably, and there is a correct one that's fully functional right now. Ah, here it is. There's the correct one that's <laughs> operating. Wow. Mm. Look at that. <laughs> Nothing Holy... but pure professionalism here, folks. Wow. That's, <laughs> there that's awesome. So I don't recall making two of these. So let me check my YouTube studio. But isn't it great that it's working and that we're having a show? We're having a show, but I can't see the correct. See, now this one says live. Let me click on this one. Yeah, yes, it's so the greatest weird. show on earth. <laughs> yeah, I clicked, <laughs> I clicked on the one from the social media link and it went to the one where there was like 46 waiting now there's 117 in the actual one so this replicated Thank you, Rose. in some weird way i don't even know how yeah. that happened bizarre today youtube has not enjoyed um our team well since everybody's <laughs> listening to us the of ourselves well. crow why don't you go ahead and tell everybody what they did to us earlier <laughs> maybe crow's crow. not here he might have gone I could say what happened. Oh, yeah, you go ahead. I'm just trying to get it. this set up so I can actually see everybody and, and, and communicate. Yeah, so while we're waiting for Crow to come back, what happened was is for hours we were waiting for YouTube to I'm, I'm here, guys, but okay. I can hear oh, there he people is. talking. So you're listening to multiple tabs at once. So just why don't you close out all of your browsers because you don't have to worry about leaving Skype and then reopen a browser and actually close all your browsers and then click on the YouTube link from Skype and that will be the only thing that opens. So uh, what happened was we, <laughs> we had uh, a hard time trying to get it to upload and when it finally did upload there was 19 ads for a 56 minute video which is a 9-11 encode and so we were trying to get the ads to stop and there was just all sorts of problems no comments no views no likes so after a couple hours we deleted it and re-uploaded it and now it's working <laughs> okay so check strange this out. things I, are afoot i do have two of them i didn't create two of them and one is monetized and one is not how odd but anyway, I'm hmm. going to get over to Gremlins. Let me <clears throat> fix this so it doesn't kick us off. Yeah. It's, none of my settings are here either. This is really strange. All right. Enable my... Yeah. No, it's not made for kids. Okay, so let's fix this. Not as weird as my channel going live twice in a week without me. I was driving down the road and I got a, <laughs> I got a message on my phone that says you're live. And I'm like, the hell? <laughs> I ran home, took me 15 minutes to stop the stream. Yeah. And YouTube wouldn't fix it. I hit their guys for like two weeks, um, their tech support. And they're like, we don't know what's going on. <laughs> like, <laughs> cool. Thanks. <laughs> appreciate that. Yeah, they're they're happy happy All guys right. over there. So let's just plunge into this. Uh, we won't be n nice about it. So today we've got me, Rose Triple Seven, the Great Baldini, Crow Triple Seven, Wayne McCroy, and Mark Bloom, and we are going to talk about signs and symbols in modern music, uh, which is where Mark Bloom comes in. Apparently, he went to school for this before they kicked that to the curb and smashed its teeth in. So, Mark, where <laughs> do you want to begin here? Uh, this is something that we're all familiar with. Uh, 
we've all broken stuff down. It's it's very obvious. They're so blatant about it nowadays when they dance around their underpants with uh, devil horns and, and, and <laughs> uh, spitting fire at everybody. And they're just kind of like, hey, I worship Satan. <laughs> you know, that kind of crap. But Yeah, it's got a lot more, more obvious about it. I was at university. Um, I know that um, this is uh, very similar to a few weeks back. You guys took a look at um, the IPEC GOAT video. And what you were doing there is was like the sort of average lesson I had at university for popular music studies. We we started off with visual because that's much easier. And then you can move on to audio. And this is where uh, I think the idea was they were, the, my lecturers, they were trying to establish a methodology of analysis for popular music because prior to the 1980s, people were just using classical music Me uh, measurements like for popular music which obviously doesn't translate too well and so it it's very similar to what you were doing um with the ipad goat video where you're sort of looking at the details but instead of looking you're listening to um some of the like the different vertical layering of the tracks which is um where the the, the first document i mentioned before the notes on semiotic analysis sort of comes in just about there um, if you want if, uh, if you want to start that one <laughs> all right so we're going to start with your thing on brian longhurst text and meanings that's where we want to start right that's from just for the people listening that's from a book called popular music and society by brian longhurst all right let's go through this and then we'll start tearing it apart this first text is an argument presented by Brian Longhurst on the musicological approaches to analyzing popular music using Richard Middleton's work as an example. In this text, <clears throat> Longhurst highlights the neglect musicology has had towards popular music in three main areas, terminology, methodology, and ideology. Each area is elaborated upon explaining how they lean towards Western classical music as more attention is paid to harmony, tonality, and the notation of music. In popular music, rhythm and timbre are often important factors. Also, most popular music isn't notated at least until after the release of the recording, as more attention is often given to the performance, recorded aspects of the music, as opposed to the initial writing composition. The methods provided further into this text are of more use to my own analysis. I copied and pasted this from an analysis that uh, was done in the university by Mark, just so everybody knows, as Longhurst explains alternate methods for the analysis of popular music, the study of semiotics, and the four dimensions in approach to structure. The first structural dimension Longhurst provides is syn... Let me see if I say this right. Syntagmatic, <laughs> or in short, the syntax. This is the form of the song or song structure. For example, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, which is commonly referred to as A, B, A, B, C, B, or pop form in popular music studies. And I completely agree with that, by the way, because I do write songs that are poppy-ish. <laughs> Sometimes the syntax is indicative of a genre depending on the form used, as certain genres are often presented through specific song forms, like strophic verse form, which is a common feature throughout folk and blues music. However, the members of Tool right now are laughing at us about verse and chorus. <laughs> the next dimension is generative. This is where the interrelations of the music generate thought, 
mood, or feeling. These musical interrelations can be horizontal or vertical, meaning what and how instruments vocals are used together in smaller units of the song or in sequence throughout the song. The next dimension, processual, relates to the previous two dimensions as when generated thoughts, moods, or feelings recur or develop throughout the song, depending on the syntax it often creates, continues a story, or theme. Anything contributing to this development, from a guitar riff to a recurring line in the lyrics, can be described as processual. The last dimension is paradigmatic, or the paradigm. This is a specific moment in a song that stands out to the listener as being something of significance, or a special moment in the music. A paradigmatic moment is often a short and singular moment within the song, and can be anything from the voice to any of the instruments or other recorded sounds. How, how or when the moment occurs can determine the moment as paradigmatic too, meaning it can be a thing that recurs throughout the song, but due to the how and when, it can be described as paradigmatic in one of its instances over the others. All right. So that that's good. I like that breakdown. Uh, definitely applies to pop music. And being somebody yeah. who's recorded music and things like that, uh, you, you're right. A lot of times the uh, the writing and all that, that, that the more specifics of putting it on paper and selling tab, like tablature books and things like that, that comes later. Uh, studio musicians yeah. will often use, as Baldini will tell you, uh, things called charts, which is here's the key. It goes in this structure, but it may not be yeah. every single cool note. Show. Right. So those kinds of things happen in more popular music or even jazz, things like that. But anyway, I don't want to talk over everybody. So whoever wants to take this, go right ahead. Do you want me to jump in first? Sure, go ahead. Right. Um, so this is kind of the, this would be the foundation. Like you said, you're already familiar with this. Presumably the majority of people in a live chat are already used to this, or at least if not, they, they'll recognize it now listening to music. Um, so this is kind of like the familiar familiarity um aspect of popular music recordings is the i think we put i put pop form which was the verse chorus verse chorus bridge chorus so everyone listening will uh, to to popular music will already know when listening to most sharp music you'll already know when the the, the chorus is coming and the bridge section or the mid lathe whatever you want to call it so with that familiarity it's people in a if you think about it in terms of psychology, I've just listened to the Freud and Jung episodes that uh, you guys did on Crow Triple Seven, and when you think about the psychological uh, psychological aspect of people being more receptive to an idea if they're already pre-familiarized with it, so if you put something, um, I think Bobby and he says the Overton window, the idea of taking something that's not um, acceptable and sort of slowly over time gradually pushing it you can see how um using pop form or verse chorus verse chorus bridge chorus something that people are familiar with if you can put something within that context over time it can be more accepted by the public the listening public like um i think i've heard you mention before like it's crazy that uh someone like cardi b with her say lyrical content can sell records and um gain a following but when you think about the, the setting that all that content is in um it's not too surprising in a way because people are already familiar with about 90 percent of the the content there so like that last 10 percent is 
they can stomach it. It's like um, that Mary Poppins, a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. People are used to the sugar, so they don't mind the medicine. (laughs) (laughs) Or poison. Yeah. Yeah. And to kind of go hand in hand with that, uh, a great study in this, um, you know, one of the things that got me into um, this whole area of uh, recording and um, and musicality uh, from a technical standpoint is very early on uh, reading a book on um, neuropsychology and uh, what's called um, uh, acoustics, um, psychoacoustics, basically a physiological response that you have to sound. Uh, It's fairly complex. study. However, uh, there's a great book um, called This Is Your Brain on Music. Uh, and um, the guy who wrote it, Daniel Levinton, uh, both a fairly noted producer and a neuropsychologist, um, while some of the stuff is poppycock, he does go do a great job <laughs> of walking through um, essentially what um, what makes not only a good, a good song, but what uh, what attracts us to it. And I think this is um, a great example here is that there are there are rules in um, music that we're familiar with. Um, most of us know Western music, Western modern music. Uh, there are other forms of music, but there are rules. And uh, it is the breaking of those rules slightly to bring a little surprise that kind of makes a hook. Um, but it's those rules um, that makes uh, – if you break those rules too far, we don't find it very pleasurable. Uh, and I noted in the chat, right, there's a there's a difference between those who uh, just kind of uh, – this music sort of flows out of them, but it's based on the rules that they've already learned. And then you can analyze it. Much, much of the stuff that we see from the Tavistockian um, aspect is very well constructed. For example, uh, Marks from Liverpool, um, the stomping grounds of the Beatles – uh, I think most of us can agree that uh, pretty much none of that stuff was written by those four lads. <laughs> Maybe I want to hold your hand, right? Maybe what do you mean we didn't stuff. write it? You cock right. yet? Yeah, right. Um, but uh, but yeah, by the time you get to Day in the Life and that sort of stuff, it is uh, a well, very, very different set. Pardon me? We can work it out. That one's a, a, we looked at that one in university and my lecturer said that's the best Beatles song. And when I was listening to it, I remember thinking, that is a good one. This was quite an early song and that's like, it changes time signature and everything. And I remember sitting there thinking, how did Paul McCartney write that? That was, you know, it's interesting that you say that, Mark, because that was right at the time when everything was doing like their little switch over from where the live bubblegum sugary pop group to, hey, we're going to be really good in the studio and write some serious albums now that are that are cutting edge and uh, going after the, the, the social engineering aspects of everything. We're going to push psychedelia and all that uh, to really uh, new levels, really. Like they were some, some of the mm. key players behind that because uh, right behind that, you, you get bands like Pink Floyd and all them starting that. So the Beatles seem to be the, the groundwork. And that, that 66-ish time was was really like that key moment when they stopped writing things like I want to hold your hand. And uh, mm. this is like Rubber Soul. So for anybody who's a Beatles fan, what we're talking about is uh, Rubber Soul, which is the last album they would have played anything live from. And then in between that and to Revolver, which is the first studio album, they're like, we're done. We're not playing live anymore. We're just a studio band. This is also ironically, and I'm, I'm not going to get into this tonight because it's a whole friggin' tome by itself. This is also the time when said James Paul McCartney may have died and been replaced, which is around 1966-ish. Same time periods, but anyway. That's right. And also, um, the uh, I'm not sure, too sure about Tavistock, but I know that um, what's the CEO of Apple Corps? The, he's dead now, but... Um, oh, Steve Jobs. 
No. Oh, oh, oh sorry. No, no, oh, sorry. The, the other apple. <laughs> apple. I always blank on his name when I need to remember it. What was but, the question, um, though? It, I, I didn't. I didn't quite catch that. The CEO of Apple Corps. Um, I don't actually know. Is that originally the manager that died? Is that who you're referencing? Talking about Brian Epstein? No, but it, Brian Epstein was, was involved. Neil? Uh, is that Neil Aspinall? Neil Aspinall. Jeff Jones? Okay. Oh, yeah. Neil Aspinall. That's okay. the one. Right. So yeah. very early on in the late 1950s, he was actually involved with the Beatles right back then before Ringo was even in the band because um, the Beatles actually didn't start in the cavern. They started in the Casbah, which I've been to and I've seen the photographs and, you know, uh, the newspaper cuttings and I've met... Um, Neil Aspinall has a a son who is Pete uh, Pete Best's the original drummer for the Beatles. Pete Best's half brother Rogue, who now manages the Casbah, and it, it, Rogue was. This is online. I'm not spilling any like family secrets or anything. This can be read online. But Rogue was um, born out of an affair because his mum was actually the manager of the Casbah and was technically the first manager of the Beatles unofficially and so Neil Aspinall and Brian Epstein kind of came in and swindled the Beatles from her because she suggested bringing them to the cavern because the cavern was going to close down because they were a jazz club they didn't want rock and roll bands playing and so they it was I've been told by Rogue that it was um, Neil Aspinall his dad and um Brian Epstein and two other men in suits. And if I was to guess, I'd probably say they were Tavistock, maybe. But this was like 1959, 1960. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> I, you know, I've, I've never been sure about how um, how all this would have gone down because the Beatles are such a unique, just everything. Right, there's just so much about them. Like, like if it was groundbreaking, the Beatles did it at the time, and no one's really matched it. I mean, the studio stuff is one of the things I'm really big into because I'm a I'm a gear nerd, and that's the thing that impresses me the most is what was going on and how they pushed things to a new level. Now, whether they are writing the songs or not, well, obviously you can debate that, <laughs> um, but. Nothing changes the fact that they got very, very clever in the studio, and were, they were blowing people's minds at the time. So these kinds of things weren't done before, especially Sgt. Pepper. That was the one that really blew everyone's marbles because they kept right. bouncing tracks back and forth and back and forth and back and forth with two – I think it was two separate four-track machines. So people weren't even thinking in these terms for the most part yet, and then they came out with that, yeah, and they were just like, holy true, shit, Like, look what people can do if you take the time. You have to remember as well, uh, I mean, I know this firsthand, but they, they, they were purported to be four poor boys from Liverpool. And having grown up working class in Liverpool in the modern the modern, modern day, where we have um, a, a much better economy because of the Beatles and the football clubs here, um, I can honestly say, like, the recording techniques and the songwriting, I'm not sure how, from a perspective of, working class Liverpool <laughs> in the 1950s when they were growing up and Liverpool was a backwater because we got bombed hell out of during World War Two. <laughs> there weren't too many studios knocking about. <laughs> yeah, well, that's for sure. Uh, do we want to move on to the next part or anybody else want to throw something in there on this section? 
I would just throw in, uh, take note that there's actually um, four different uh, distinct parts uh, to this whole formula here. And that that's a very important idea to keep in mind as well. Uh, this harkens back to things like elemental ideas, once again, uh, the four cardinal directions, this kind of thing. So when you're looking at this and you could break this down into four different aspects here and use these to scientifically uh, produce a song and actually, you know, uh, steer it into something that becomes a hit. Uh, just using this specific formula and, and giving it uh, this type of, of, of life or energy behind it, um, there's something kind of alchemical going on there, isn't there? Uh, and that, that's kind of a, a direction we could look at with this, because when you're talking about frequency, vibration, sound, acoustics, all these different ideas, and uh, as Baldini mentioned that book, Psychoacoustics, or, or things relating to psychoacoustics, this is a very real field. And, uh, you know, music does have a very definitive effect on the human mind. Absolutely. So, uh, and it, knowing that, it could... Go ahead. Well, Bobby, just say, just say quickly, no, just, just say quickly, it's one of the, um, it's the only thing uh, that we know of that bypasses the limbic system uh, that comes through the senses, but that bypasses the limbic system and goes directly hardwired to the music center of the brain. Um, it does kind of backflow through it, but uh, you, you can um, use it to embed anything you want because it goes right past the limbic system, um, which is the first stop for anything uh, that comes into your senses and gets uh, compared against prior experience. And that's where you begin to do pattern recognition. It bypasses that altogether. Uh, so uh, very, very powerful um, is music in, in so many different ways. Right. It's kind of like a back door to the unconscious mind in a way. Absolutely. Uh, so, I mean, when you keep that in mind, I mean, there's very many different programming motifs that could be used through music. That's why the music industry is so obsessed with the occult and, uh, you know, all they these are. different aspects of things. <laughs> I'm kidding, right? Yeah, no, of course not. It's perfectly normal for, uh, you know, Beyonce to go up on stage with devil horns on and, you know, fire all around and, you know. It's artistic. Worshipping the devil and all of that stuff. <laughs> she okay. arts very and well. It's all just for show. It's very artsy. It's all just for show. There's nothing behind it. No, performance so, art. Yeah, it is. It's art. It's performance art. Of course it is. Uh, but, yeah, at any rate, that's that's kind of the thing. I mean, uh, when when you look at the basics behind uh, this whole premise, you could see there's a very real formula here uh, in order to uh, affect the mind in a certain way. Uh, using m music, the sound, the, the audio frequencies, this kind of thing. And uh, you can see how they have uh, this hook that they put in there, too, uh, through these different methods here. And I don't know all the proper words. i got to learn these words. Uh, so... <laughs> Very I, understand. I understand the concept. <laughs> I'm not familiar with the vernacular per se, the particular vernacular or the uh, jargon here, but uh, like I, I totally get the concept, and it, it's true. Like they, they create mm -hmm. this certain rhythm process that pulls the mind in, and then there's certain parts, which is what the paradigmatic part, where they put something significant there, and this is kind of the hook that uh, you know creates this back door into the unconscious mind. Absolutely. You know? There's so many aspects to that too, Wayne. Like um, you'll, you'll find that uh, m many um, popular music is either at around 60 beats a minute, which is uh, about a resting heart rate, or double that, 120 beats per minute is a very popular uh, tempo or right in that neighborhood. Um, and, and then you'll find that some of them will speed it up a little bit, right? Uh, and you'll find that it pushes forward uh, a little bit. There's a variety of different things uh, that can be done. One of the uh, most popular 
um, chord progressions throughout, for example, through the uh, 50s and 60s was a 1-6-2-5 progression, which has a, a very simple resolve to it uh, and uh, easily pulls people in and makes things very memorable. And you'll find that many commercials, uh, harking back to um, Bernays, many commercials are, as you know, just reworded. <laughs> they set just new words over um, simple uh, tunes, that melodies that you already know. <laughs> in fact, there's a, oh, cheers, a cheers episode about me. that. Pardon me? Um, Owen Benjamin did the same, didn't he? He had a, a joke in his live set where he would play the same four chords, the ones used in Let It Be, the Beatles uh, Let It Be. In fact, there, <laughs> there is, I just, uh, yep, in fact, I just um, posted a, um, a YouTube video about that today. I'd have to probably find the link, uh, but uh, a, com a comedic band from Australia uh, that does oh, yeah. six, 61 songs, yeah, um, 61 songs <laughs> in a, a medley of, you know, those same four chords of all these top 40 hits um, based on that uh, the same chord arrangement, which is, I think, a, a one, uh, one, five, a, six, four. one, five, six, four. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, uh, it, but all of them, <laughs> right? From, hey, from let's explain be. that because the people who aren't into music let's 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 like oh sure um so yeah, one really, five six really, four they, what we're talking about is a chord progression but uh you're probably better at that the classical side of things so let's ex explain what exactly that real, means because it yeah, is quickly, absolutely just, used uh in in popular music in general in like these guys know this stuff especially when you're talking <laughs> about multi-million dollar productions they know what to put in where to hook the mind Sure. Yeah, it always works. <laughs> and the um, the chord progressions basically is the um, the arrangements of chords um, in relation to one another. Um, so um, when you have a, for example, a major chord, if you have a triad that's a one, three to five, those are relationships, um, tonal relationships to one another. And there are in Western music, there are eight, um, well, seven notes plus the eight, which is the octave. And when you put those together, a major uh, a major progression, um, the the if you use triads, the one is always major, two is minor, three is minor, four is major, five is major. Major six is minor and seven is the um, augmented chord, which pulls you back uh, into the. And so you can. It doesn't matter what key it is. Um, you can just say a one six two five, and those relationships will always remain the same to each other. And so a sixth would be. Um, you are then you know if it's in a major key, the one six two five one is going to be the major tonic, um, the six is going to be the six minor, and and so forth. And you can play that in any key. Um, those relationships will remain um, to one another, and they have a very uh, very uh, familiar sound. Um, so whenever this is what we do in the studio when we, we um, when we write charts, for example. Um, that's just kind of the relationship you, that you use. You just say it's a, a one six two five and G, right? At about eighty six beats a minute and go, <laughs> and pretty much everybody can play that um, because they understand those relationships. But um, yeah, it's a it's a common shorthand that, that we would use, but it's just relationships to one another. So um, all all tones uh, tones and semitones in Western music based on Pythagorean theory, which is a ratio to one another, um, and so those intervals then. Then, um, become kind of set in modern music, Western music. We use a, a tempered tuning scale, give a few cents, take a few, a few cents, but um, that gives us that 12 semitones. And then you combine those into a variety of different ways. Uh, but yeah, that's, uh, but there's some standard stuff that's used all throughout modern um, pop music, which is typically pretty simple. Three or four chords, ZZ Top and ACDC <laughs> put out tons of albums <laughs> with three chords, man. <laughs> and that's it. And you and, uh, love yeah, it's basically all the same notes. song with different words. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey, it's amazing how it always too. works. <laughs> so somebody Sometimes. asked for, uh, let me see, Jay Armstrong is asking for an example of the tunes. I assume he, he means, uh, uh, like, what's uh, a good example of, Jay, of some pop Jay songs? Armstrong's that a girl, by the way. <laughs> Sorry? <laughs> a woman. <laughs> Sorry. Um, Shauna. Um, oh, my bad. The, uh, example. We hung out with her at Freedom at Freeman Fly's house. My bad, that's right, yep. 
uh, everyone can imagine the um, the chord progression one five six four as if you imagine the opening piano to Let It Be by the Beatles. That chord progression at the beginning. If you think so about that chord F, progression, C, that is one G, five six four A minor. I think it is. Uh, yeah, that it's, would be, it's in C. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's in C. C. It'll be C G yeah. A minor F. Yeah, they do. I think the they do it in C. So it's C G A minor uh, F. Give me a second yeah. here. But I can't play it for you, or they'll strike my video down. That's true. Don't do it, Baldini. Yeah, Baldini, <laughs> don't do that. I was just going to play. The, I was just going to bring the chords, but you can do the no, chords don't, without don't do doing that. the time. Um, oh, see, right. it's it's the time signature that um, makes it recognizable. That's what the group from Australia did. Is um, you can double time it, right? They just put the chords right. in, and you can sing over it. Um, but as long as um, as long as you don't do the time, you should be in, in good shape. Uh, let's see here. I'll find it more. Just carry on. I can find it here in a moment. You'll hear it in every song from now on anyway. Um, yep. <laughs> it's good when you're a musician and you've got it, or a session musician, and you see that chord progression on a sheet because you know exactly what you're doing for the next three minutes. Exactly. I'm a shitty musician, so I can't <laughs> do these things. I just play by ear. Yeah, I play by ear. I'm, um, I was in over my head when I got into university with 50% of the course being classical music and, you know, majority of the class, my classmates were sort of classically trained from a young age. I so had that I same problem. I was lucky that I was being taught this stuff. <laughs> All right. I so, um, yeah, so with this quick setup, so um, if you're doing it in C, so the one, the one is that there's a major triad there, and then there's five, six, four, right? And so you can kind of hear where that goes. Um, and that is the base of a bunch of different songs. So, and uh, you, again, God, it still sounds hundreds. like it though, doesn't it? <laughs> Just doing that, even though you played <laughs> well, it out of time. Kind of, but, but if you, if you don't, um, if you don't do the walk down and if you don't do the, uh, the timing, right, then you can kind of get away with it. Uh, because those, again, <laughs> 12 notes, you can, there's only so many ways you can put them together. <laughs> right. Uh, but it's though, it is those relationships to, yeah, it's those relationships <laughs> to one another. And when you do some, uh, some interesting things, right. So there's a, there's a number of things where you can go from a, a major to a minor and you make that change and you can modulate, do a half step up or whatever. Those are the interesting rule breaking things that can make um, songs interesting. Uh, or you can break the rules altogether. Like somebody mentioned White Rabbit earlier from um, Jefferson Airplane. And that really right. breaks the rules in a bunch of different ways. It's kind of like an early uh, but- tool song. <laughs> it's, it's more like a club, really. It's a, a hammer. No, it's like, uh, but anyway. Uh, but yeah, there's those those relationships. But uh, the the trick here, right, is um, not just doing this as a, a matter uh, of inspiration, uh, but a matter of construction, uh, right, and and using it as a tool. So, as the, it appears, they have done. Anyway, well, it, back to it, Mark. It, so go ahead. It's, well, at some point, I, I'm assuming we're going to do the devil's interval here if we're talking about things that were replicated over and over and over. Well, I was thinking about that, um, Crow. That the the whole like the, people have known the power of music for centuries at this point because just like what you're saying uh the church of course had a had a conniption about the devil's uh, triad and all that you know diablo and musica you can't use that that or else you're you're summoning evil or some bullshit but all the way up to the 20th century when jazz started that was the latest thing that everyone was throwing a fit about but i think that's if i had to guess that's about the time that the music industry started to coalesce and figuring out hey we can manipulate people with this shit well think think about 
you know, what's a good with Black Sabbath? There's a good example. They made good use of the the, the flatted fifth triad known as the Devil's Interval, and their whole brand is basically diabolic. Um, and they and claim this goes well. They claim that yeah. they first, I think it was Latin, old Latin monks or something, came up with the idea that that was something you didn't play. So it was known well before these bands came using it over and over. I mean, that's a big part of blues too. I would estimate. Yeah, and then of course blues. Well, blue, blues and jazz—they kind of both came around around the uh, early 20th century, but jazz became a bigger. What would you call it? Like in society, yeah, it was yeah, the bigger more thing at the time. It was more authentic, didn't it? But yeah, then in the 40s more, and 50s, blues started coming in, and then you had this that new next generation, this new crop of musicians picking up on the blues thing and turning it into what would become rock and roll. A lot yeah, of it, it was driven by youth power as well. We were looking into, and uh, a lot of the case studies we used, regardless of the time period in relation to media, um, a lot of these sort of social engineering projects, whether it was an entire genre or a band, a lot of it was dri- uh, driven by youth power. So it was always sort of uh, that the chosen demographic would be the youth of the day. So this is why you got weird um, situations like I, I believe that um, in Chicago jazz is seen as more authentic than blues, despite you know the fact that they both um, exist there and have, have had their um, success in Chicago. And a lot of that was to do with jazz was already doing it something there, but then the youth that came afterwards sort of helped lift the blues to the surface. And so the, it, a lot of the time, these social engineering projects seem to rely on youth power which i think like wayne was pointing out before is sort of like an alchemical process this idea of like energy you need something behind it to fuel it and and blues also um was during the time very easy for um it's very easy for beginning musicians to play in in a sense it typically is just three chords mostly one four five Right, one, four, five, and it is uh, this when you solo over it. Really, it's again a pentatonic minor scale, so five notes rather than the typical seven. Uh, it gives you um, a, it's a lot easier to play, and the, the way the patterns develop on a guitar fretboard makes it uh, a lot more. Ex- I love me some pentatonic. More, <laughs> right, a lot more accessible. Right to to um, junior or beginner musicians, neophytes um, becomes a, a much easier to play. Uh, so, mm. yeah. Well, it's also so, easy because you can memorize that little pattern, and then all of a sudden, I've taught this to so many younger guitarists. It's like, hey, memorize this, and then your yeah. first note. If you keep to that pattern, guess what? You're in key. Exactly, <laughs> and in fact, I've done um, this uh, that exact thing with people who are like, complete neophytes, right? And you can just um, you can play uh, a one six two five right um, pattern uh, and just show them these five notes, and as long as they stick on those five notes, uh, they can play a solo if they've never played before, <laughs> right? Uh, so um, it's a very very simple pattern uh, to to do, and people can uh, immediately become involved uh, w- with music, and that uh, it's a great teaching tool. It's great to get people excited about it, but it also again it makes it very uh, accessible uh, and it, there is a certain um, especially uh, w- when you aren't skilled and you're not overthinking it sometimes um, that allows uh, expression to come out uh, more easily and so the uh, blues has often been described as being very passionate right very colorful because they're thinking they're not really thinking so much about playing it doesn't take as much skill they can really spend a lot more time um, just in the expressive part as well 
you know, it's it also kind of, helps. It's, from, it's, oh, sorry, go on. Well, I was going <laughs> to say it's it's interesting how these things catch on because I was reading through the paper. You know, the idea of analyzing how a thing comes to be and then what's done with it. The claim, and I don't know that this is true, but it sounds semi-acceptable. The claim is, is that the Devil's Interval was never really played in popular rock until Black Sabbath came along. But since I play guitar, <clears throat> I would take umbrage with that a little because I believe there is a flatted fifth in Jimi Hendrix's Purple Haze. But if you follow the thread of these ideas, which was why I think the paper we're looking at is so interesting, there is a thread. Like, if I'm not mistaken, Primus wrote the South Park theme, and that's full of flatted fifths. Um, so you can see how they start, but it's almost like you would never, what am I trying to say here? Like you're never going to see a band like electric light orchestra, you know, making famous song with flatted fifths. If you follow my logic there. Right. Yeah. And the seven, the, um, the purple haze chord, if I remember right, it's like a seven flat nine. It's a, it's a dominant extended, like dominant seven chord. Um, but it does have a similar feel to it. It's got that tension, right? That really. It was heavy. always E wasn't it with it or was yeah. it? It's always there a, there's no maybe flatted with Hendrix. I'm pretty sure there's a flatted fifth in the opening to Purple Haze. There may be, but it's yeah, but it's a E seven flat nine is the full chord. Um, the way he voices it. But again, he was playing upside down and backwards. <laughs> that does happen. It's got that tritone thing to it for sure, though. I learned it upside right and frontwards. <laughs> <laughs> I play it on Les Paul. Right yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> all right so we jump up to the uh to the next section here philip tag introductory notes on the semiotics of music this second text is part of an ongoing project to produce a textbook on the semiotics of music semiotics are signs signifiers often universally recognized as connoting something more for example a fire alarm ringing out means smoke Smoke means fire, fire means danger, and danger means get to safety. In this example, the fire alarm uses semiotics to indicate or instruct get to safety through a chain of connotations. In this text, Tag elaborately discusses the use of semiotics or signs in music, creating a category system of the different types of signifiers. First of all, Tag explains anaphones. There are three different types of anaphones in popular music, the first being a sonic anaphone, which is something in the music which relates or refers to something non-musical. For example, a guitar riff, which sounds like a plane taking off, or a motorbike starting up, could be described as a sonic anaphone. The next type of anaphone is a kinetic anaphone. This is where something in the music is relating to movement. For instance, a drum beat that sounds like footsteps could be described as a kinetic anaphone. The last anaphone is a tactile anaphone. This is when something in the music represents or relates to touch. The previous example of walking can also be applied here as it is something of a physical nature involving touch. Sometimes anaphones can occur together, and when all three are present at the same time, this instance is described as a composite anaphone. Beyond anaphones, Tag discusses more semiotic terminology applicable to popular music recordings, such as genre stink dokes, Style indicators. What Sorry. is it? Synecdokes? <laughs> Synecdokes, yeah. I feel like I'm back in school because there are many words here that I have never heard before. These are like terminologies made from about the 1980s onwards because they're specifically created for popular music and, you know, no one cared about it until about the 1980s. So this is the kind of terminology which has been removed from the education system since about three months after I finished my master's. Well, damn. 
All right. Well, uh, as well as style indicators and episodic markers, a genre. I'm sorry. Pronounce this correctly, so I don't uh, so I don't say it wrong a hundred times. Synecdoke. Synecdoke. Okay. A genre synecdoke is something in the music which relates to a musical genre. For instance, a certain instrument and the style in which it is being played may be key to a specific genre of music. This informs the listener of a genre subgenre and perhaps establishes a certain aesthetic attached to that genre or subgenre. Like a, a tuba going oom ba ba oom ba ba, right? Gives you the cue that you're gonna about to listen to some. <laughs> <laughs> you're about to listen a little to little drum roll before reggae. Right, exactly. Yeah, but the that um, that tuba umpapa, that little uh, three four thing, tells like you right waltz. away. Yeah, exactly. You're gonna listen yeah, to a Bavarian exactly. waltz and drink beer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a style indicator is an aspect of the music which suggests a home style for the recording, the home genre of the recording. The syntax could be indicative of this, as previously mentioned with the folk example when discussing Longhurst's structural dimensions, but also instrumentation and performance techniques used can indicate a specific style. An episodic marker is something in the music which highlights an important moment, like a change from verse to chorus, or perhaps that a guitar solo is about to take place. This marker can be, and often is, something small, perhaps as small as a pause, brief silence in the music before the next verse, clearly indicating progression or change to the listener. Tag's explanation of figure and ground is useful for semiotic analysis when considering the above terminologies, also including those provided by Longhurst. Figure is what is in the foreground of the recording, and ground is what is in the background of the recording, in the vertical layering. The figure and ground can shift or change as a song progresses, and this occurrence is described as syncretic. Syncrisis, pronounced syncresis. Gotcha. Okay, I'm learning things today. This is wonderful. <laughs> Through these methods and approaches, <laughs> it can be realized that some, if not all, go hand in hand, complementing or overlapping one another and enabling the listener to subjectively yet accurately describe and analyze exactly what can be heard in any popular music recording. All right, Mark, go ahead. Uh, let's, let's, let's let you start this right. one. I'll use uh, an example. Um, I'll use a cliche example because uh, it'll be the Beatles. A lot of my case studies at university were the Beatles because they're right on the doorstep. I have access to as much information as I need. But everyone will know this one, presumably. The song A Day in the Life from Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band album. The You know the section of the song where Paul McCartney, Billy Shepard, is about to um, come in and sing, isn't he? Woke up, got out of bed, that part of the song. So there's uh, an example of pretty much all of that paragraph, that section you just read. Uh, that alarm clock, uh, while we were in university, we read over a previous student's essay, and she had wrote about a 3,000-word essay on the two seconds' worth of audio with the alarm clock, and she made a very convincing argument. Um, that all of these terminologies apply because it's um, whoever decided to put that alarm in, this is the best example I can think of in popular music because it sets a scene because as soon as you hear the alarm clock, instantly you know where you are, which would be a bedroom. You know what time of day it is. It'll be morning. You know kind of the layout of a bedroom anyway. You know the, what the person who, you know that there's a person there because why else would an alarm clock be going off? You know what the person will be doing because they'll be waking up out of bed or they'll already be awake. Um, you know what they're about to do as well. And because this is the modern era now, it's been 50 years roughly since they 
record of that. It's not a digital alarm clock. It's a, a I don't know what you'd call. It, I guess a real alarm clock with the, the bell. The, yeah, yeah, the metal bell. Yeah. So it gives you a time and place. So in other words, this two second clip of audio sets an entire scene in your head, ready for Paul McCartney, Billy Shepherd's old habits, <laughs> Billy Shepherd's lyrics and vocals to um animate the character within the scene that just got set up in your head so then that you follow with that scene in your head you follow the character because he does the you know the lyrics are pretty much describing what he's doing woke up got out of bed dragged a comb across my head eventually he's running out the front door and getting the bus it's yeah and he it, drops it's a that, brilliant piece of he audio. drops that uh, anaphone in there as well the <laughs> Exactly. Right, it's just, he nails it right, right in the time. It's, it's so expressive, yeah. Which is proof that they, whoever decided to put these um, little audio clips in there, definitely understood everything that's laid out in this document I've typed here. Which, and like I said a moment ago, that this terminology only started really being developed in the eighties, so far as the wider public are concerned, and really, it's only, it was only being taught in a, a mainstream capacity, I guess, uh, while I was at university, because it was they were sort of testing the water with the stuff while I was there. We were the guinea pig class um, for the university to try and uh, my lecturers were essentially designing a popular music studies undergraduate degree of its own. And it got about three months of life before it all got shut down. <laughs> so this terminology here is like, it, it didn't really get to take off, but it, as you can see, it definitely does apply. Can't be showing the man behind the curtain, right? That's what's going on there. I yeah, would have this dismantles it, and if it dismantles like what we're doing here, we can easily break down like I just did with the alarm clock, but just as much as you can dismantle something with this terminology, uh, like Wayne was suggesting before with the elements, it, it also you can reverse that process and reassemble it, or you can create from new using this terminology. And then, of course, you can, you know, free will, I guess, you can encode whatever the hell you want, which kind of suggests that they do. <laughs> yeah, and I think, um, in, fa in fact, uh, to me, uh, Mark's story about them shutting this down, that the entire program is ne nearly as fascinating uh, as the topic itself. Um, Nothing to see here. Move along. So much money they spent, yeah. like, a, they renovated the entire creative department of uh, the university in the the Christmas because I finished my master's degree in November because a master's is a full year not an academic year and then I finished in November and then over Christmas they spent a ton of money renovating the entire department the the the, the campus I was at and then in the new year they started a popular music undergraduate or they actually they started it before Christmas they started September and it ran they had Christmas and then when they came back, they continued the popular music undergraduate and the original uh, undergraduate degree I did was done away with, but was replaced with a purely classical music undergraduate degree. And then, of course, my lecturer, uh, my main lecturer, he had originally designed the master's degree I did. It's completely his. It was the only one in the world that you could do this. And I was a part of the last class to graduate from that. And it seems that perhaps because dissertations for a master's degree the title of them gets read out in the the graduation um and of course all the higher ups of the university are at the graduation because it's like a giant cathedral so 
the title of my dissertation had the word rhetoric in it because we were all being educated in rhetoric and because that's the last component to this methodology is rhetoric. Oh, it's your fault, yeah. <laughs> Me and a few other people had rhetoric in our, our dissertation titles. So I think because that happened in January, just after they came back after Christmas, I think that's why all of a sudden things started getting turned on its head. And I was also volunteering at the university as a research assistant for my former lecturer. So I got to see some of the behind the scenes and the dirty tactics I spoke about before to try and get rid of people. In the end, they just paid people off, made them redundant. They moved before that. They moved the popular music office into the electrics, the the main room for the electrics, with the main electrics for the entire campus. And um, my lecturer just wasn't happy at all with any of this. And anyone associated with my undergraduate and my masters got done away with. So neither none of this information and neither of my degrees are available and they also had four years worth of students lined up for the popular music undergraduate and every student pays between nine grand if you're a local student nine grand a year and if you're a foreign student I'm pretty sure it's something like 20 or 30 grand a year so four years worth of students and they renovated the entire department and then did away with it in within about three months (laughs) <laughs> what year was this? This was 2000. The end of 2018 was when I finished. So the beginning of 2019 was when they did away with everything. If you, you know, it seems to me if you get people putting a system like this together that gets very sophisticated, you'll be showing one of the primary programming methods of society. I mean, this could, be, this could be, this could be. This could be ported right over to television. And for that matter, absolutely. Um, look oh, yeah. Rap, this is what rap, we did first. Yeah, look at what <laughs> rap is doing. Rap is like a simplified version or, or a more we actually basic used version. Rap. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Is... We started with video um, using rap, using 50 Cent, actually, the, the rapper 50 Cent. Um, that was one of my earliest lessons, was looking at his, uh, is it Candy Shop, his famous song, the music video for that, because we started with visual. And I realized retrospectively that I think one of my lecturers, because he was teaching us this as like a toolkit so we could do this independently and then we would bring our work to him. It seems to me like he was collecting data because if you have all these students, like 30 students per class armed with this terminology, doing these types of analyses and then handing them in and no one's really corroborated anything with each other. If you see any crossover between what people have interpreted it suggests that there is a message being communicated and that did happen in class once with a particular music video and pop song from over here and for about the the majority of my undergraduate 90 percent of my class thought this was nonsense but they did it for the grade and in the final year when that happened in class where we all independently analyzed this video and we all came up with the same thing but with different signs and symbols and audio indicators everyone kind of looked at each other like oh my god this is actually communicating something between us all (laughs) and there it is (sighs) this is all part of the hidden language of the controllers this is what they use as a programming template and uh, they 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 could all read this stuff and understand exactly what it is that they're trying to push there and and they could uh, uh, use this uh, to uh, perform social engineering feats. And uh, I think we see that 
uh, going on in spades, especially like uh, in the music industry and in the entertainment industry as well. Like Crow had mentioned, this could be used all over television and stuff. And it is. And even down to the soundtracks that go along with these TV shows, uh, the music tracks in the background. Even that stuff, like all, all of these things are, are programming motifs uh, that are being used. They can incite different uh, emotive reactions from the audience by uh, just changing up the the music going on in the background of the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, one way to really um, drive this whole point home is try watching a television show without any background music playing like in, in the television show. It's a completely different experience than uh, what it is if you're watching it right. with it the actual sounds and work, sound effects right. and stuff. Yeah. If your mind's so. not led astray, you can't fall into it. But you know, it's occurring to me, he's pointing out that when he got into this, all these folks were classically trained. That's kind of a tale in itself about how this has been employed. The complexity and the skill required for some of those, many of those classical pieces is far above almost anything popular music in the rock era got to. There are some exceptions, maybe, and you could argue maybe with the Beatles, they got that complexity in, you know, in the recording studio, if you wanted to yeah. make that argument. But there's been a progressive downhill slide in the complexity. And by the way, uh, part of the reason the Devil's Interval was outlawed is because the church had made a dictate that music's supposed to be sweet and uplifting. So that's part <laughs> of it, because um, it's ominous to play that flatted fifth. But my but point is... That's the saddest of all. Right. If you, take, <laughs> if, if you take classical music all the way through to rap, you could almost draw a 45-degree angle drop um, yeah. in the complexity and what it takes to put music together. And after all, even the names, um, I'm pretty sure 50 Cent doesn't have plural money. <laughs> but um, this is but this is to to my point is why um, that uh, the fact that they um, withdrew and closed this program is is uh, very telling uh, in that they kind of gave them the keys to the kingdom and showed them how to do it and said whoa 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 wait wait a minute back up time out hold on <laughs> no no not that now now we were only fooling <laughs> but what uh, if it was a test to see how do the how do normies react if they're told will they get it. Will they figure it out? Or, or, or did, did Tavistock show up and say, hey, man, pull the curtain back. People can see the dude. Well, no, no, or no. Did, what I'm saying is what if they did, did it the get... opposite way just to see what would happen if we actually explained this to people? Will they get it? And then once they got their data, like, nah, they don't get it. And then they just – that's why it got terminated in a weird way. It could be looked at from either way. Perhaps. I mean I was um, – there was only about – Three people in the class who, that including myself, there was me and two girls who seemed to really get it. And we moved over to the master's degree. And on the master's, my lecturers, um, they highly valued us because we got it. Like, because um, it wasn't like there was no, like, I to this day, I have an immense amount of respect for the people who have taught me because they didn't have to. They went, um, you know, sometimes they would have to do things off the books sort of like on the master's degree when i visited the casbah that was outside of university hours because we could just be people we're all adults we can just go meet up and go to the casbah but we would incorporate that into um as a part of the research later on because you know no one can stop you but we didn't tell the anyone higher up because it was kind of like let them catch you that they don't need to know you know that kind of thing uh, my lecturers were pretty, um, 
I don't know. This is, I, I don't know if the sort of awake site to use a overused term now, but the, I don't know if they were awake to a lot of this. But I I have my suspicions, but I don't want to like email them and be like, do you know Paul McCartney's dead? <laughs> <laughs> Did you hear hey, the guys, alarm clock? <laughs> hey guys, do you work for Tavis Doc? <laughs> that kind of thing. You don't want to be doing that. Um, I'm not sure they do because th this is something I've told Baldini. The the very last day I was volunteering there before I found out that you know it was all over and done with. The the lecturer I was uh, who taught me for the most part on my undergraduate was uh, a woman, uh, just a few years older than me, and she used to stick these popular culture references all over the office. And on the last day I was there, she stuck a notice on the inside of the door while I was in there, and I read it and. It was only when I actually listened to Crow Triple Seven Radio where you mentioned Tavistock. I remembered it because I was like, I've heard that before or I've seen it. And on this note on the door, it said something to the effect of the Beatles were a Tavistock construct directed by Theodore Adorno to mm. socially engineer an entire generation. And I remember looking at it and thinking, that's insane. And I looked at it and laughed. And then she looked at me and just kind of like, raised her eyebrows and smiled and i couldn't tell if she was being serious or not or <laughs> at the time but retrospectively i'm like oh shit <laughs> yeah she, she just told the straight up truth right there brother and i was already familiar with theodore adorno because we used him as comparative material because publicly he was quite critical of popular music and the beatles in particular but you know then you know he was hanging out with them <laughs> you know they're, they're... There's another thing that could be studied here. How come Paul McCartney's music has gotten crappier and crappier the older he's got from the classical <laughs> era? We could make the argument that by the time Beethoven was going deep, he was knocking out some of his best yep. tunes. Because all that was, what's Jimmy Page's deal? Writes the most <laughs> popularly played song in the world called Stairway to Heaven, and now he shows up kind of, sort of. Um, there's a whole argument to be made that much of the popular music... Um, was not written by who we think it was not written at all. by. I was thinking about I, that the I, other day. Why is McCartney's entire catalog, and, and I know I'm probably going to piss people off who, who are fans of this, but like post-Beatles, I couldn't give a flip if I never heard anything by Paul McCartney again. Like the Be Whatever was going on in the Beatles was phenomenal stuff. But like the mm. albums immediately afterwards, it's just like, huh, so there's what? A, there's another rule of thumb that I've been thinking about. It has to do with studio time. You ever hear the stories about Queen, like all these other bands are scraping for studio time, but Queen's camped out because they just got studio till the end of days. Um, <laughs> you, hear, yeah. you hear a sim single thing about similar thing about Fleetwood Mac. There's certain bands and the Beatles was one of them. They never had to worry about studio time. They freaking, you know, the studios was there to do whatever they were up to. Right. It's almost like you could correlate studio time um, with what the band's up to. I'm just saying. Well, well the first song that, that everybody learns on, on guitar, Smoke on the Water, is about studio time. <laughs> <laughs> good, good point. Just saying. The thing with Queen, though, it, it, it's, it's all about the technology level at the time. Like Queen in the early 70s, when they start recording, was really light years ahead of what it was just 10 years earlier. So they were able to do more, uh, probably with less time. It's just hard to come out and say <laughs> where I'm at, you know, because I was big into music. And at some point you just realize um, if it's the lock and stock, guess what? It's the barrel, too. 
Well, uh, and, and if you look at it in any other way, you're not being honest. And, you know, you could probably find exceptions. But I'm just saying the big momentous moments in my musical life uh, are primarily constructs to, yeah, to having, do what they did, to do having, effectively what they did. Having been in, in that part of the industry for <laughs> better part of four decades, um, there, there are a lot of running jokes about it. Um, for example, I mean, you know, have uh, it's a it's called Neiman Marcus for bums. Right. You have <laughs> you have this incredibly expensive gear and, the, and your um, your client inherently has no money. Right. Unless they have a record label behind them. Um, so the old running joke goes, uh, how do you make a million dollars in the recording industry? Start out with five million and open a studio. <laughs> <laughs> and that's true. Yeah. It's yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> I think um, the silver lining to some of this, though, um, because some people are probably like, I can't listen to popular music ever again. The silver lining is like some of this is pointed out. It's you can subjectively reinterpret what you're being presented with because a song or a recorded song isn't really complete until someone's listened to it and it's like the, the best example i had given to me was by my lecturer that if if the last song you listened to with someone before they passed away was say let it be uh, does the social engineering get to you or does that song always remind you of the person that you that passed away In a way, that is the social engineering, though, because it was tied to the nostalgia, right? Right. Um, Everything always comes full circle. And there's there's actually even I know exactly where you're going with this. And this is my problem. I don't take the music that I used to live for and love in the same way that I used to. But it does still I'll hear a song and I'll remember a better time. So the nostalgia is inseparable from it. But then you got to keep in mind things like what's a good example, the band America, who were all British. Um, <laughs> how in the hell did they write Prince's death 43 or whatever years it was before the fact um, inventor a highway Prince Purple Rain is heard for the first time. And if you look carefully at that verse, um, they're using his supposed aliases and other things uh but it's talking about a falling star ending too quickly um and it's also admitting that he didn't die if you closely look at it and i don't i don't want to be subject to that nonsense um so that's my problem and you know i can still listen for enjoyment but it doesn't come close to meaning what it once did to me but nonetheless the nostalgia will always be there that's right you can sort of um the, the part that it can do um that knowing this stuff and hearing it is you can sort of if you do hear the social engineering aspects of say uh say like a lot of the modern hip-hop or whatever passes as music now a lot of it will have sort of sexual innuendo or something like that like none of that can kind of like get it can't really program you in a sense that um, like look at the amount of effort that, that that this document lays out that they have to implement in order to make this work and the amount of music they have to churn out all year, every year as a constant bombardment, that alone suggests to me that this stuff isn't powerful in an individual sense because if that was the case, Tavistock would have had the Beatles release one single uh, and then that would would be it. We'd all be fucked. (laughs) Well, you know, uh, there's another band that I've stumbled across that is really the easiest view of how you come to grips with pretty much the biggest bands in the world they're selected for the most part 
probably Bloodline. Yep. That band would be um, Super Tramp. All right. So they lift their name from a novel. Anyone can go look it up. We're told, the story we're told is that some Dutch millionaire loves a guy or two in the band so much, he pays him a million bucks to put a band together. They put the band together and they go out to tour and it's a freaking disaster. So they pull them back. But what we now know is that Breakfast in America is a prelude to 9-11. Um, yeah. it's on, un, it's unfrickin' deniable, but beyond that, if you go back to see how it was done, the studios were all ex Masonic temples. I mean, it goes on and on and on. It's, I think it's, I don't remember if this is correct, but I think it's the master builder number 22 years before the nine 11 event. It's released to 33 or 22. I forget which, but it's all just laid out. But what it shows you is the band are just a bunch of contract stooges that can play music. That's what it shows you. Oh yeah, and if you want to, if you really want to destroy a boomer's day, just, just go back and show them how Laurel Canyon, like everybody in this, all right. the musicians in the '60s were all connected to the military-industrial complex. Every one of them, if they made any splash in the '60s, they were directly connected to the military-industrial complex and mostly spooks. Uh, so um, you, you can you ruin your day. You cut me to the quick, mate. You cut me to the quick. <laughs> yeah. At Laurel Canyon, oh man, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, we looked then, into that a little. The, yeah. the hippie you wonder why Dave McGowan got cancer and up and died. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, even even as an early musician, even in my early teens, uh, when it came to the Beatles, my take on it was, you know, I didn't really care much for it, but I uh, my my thought was, man, they're shitty musicians, but they're great songwriters. That, that was my take, <laughs> and it wasn't until later I, re I realized why. Uh, so George yeah. was the only one who seemed to have a progression. I know this when yep. I listen. Yep, he's he the was, only he one took who it seriously to too. Yeah, and yeah, he, he has a very he natural, to, even his solo career. There's yep. a kind of natural progression to it, isn't there? So I was uh, friends for years. And in fact, I still am with the guy who did front of house for Ravi Shankar for decades. And uh, he, he would tell stories of how um, Harrison came and studied uh, sitar under Ravi Shankar. And he was a very serious, serious student. And um, at, yeah. you know, at the time, though, uh, when he at the height of the Beatles um, popularity, not really a very good guitar player, uh, according according to all the stories. He was not very good, but he was um, intent on trying to become better. He was trying to actually learn the part. <laughs> To be to actually be a good player, uh, and he took it very seriously. Just interesting uh, side notes. Yeah. All right, we ready for the next section here? Yeah, next one will be a bit. Uh, it's short, but it's a little slightly more complicated. But I can probably explain it afterwards. <laughs> Roland Barthes, the grain of the voice. This third text can provide relevant information for particular song choices regarding the singer's voice in relation to the genre and its usual characteristics. The information provided is on the terms genotext and phenotext. Geno being generative emotive, engaging the listener actively, and pheno being phenomenon. Oh boy, here we go. Phenomenology. Phenomenology, not emotive, <laughs> engaging the listener passively. Gino could be described as a writerly text and Fino a readerly text. Both of these texts are in reference to the tone quality of the specific voice in question and are subjectively decided upon through personal interpretation by the listener. Do you want this next section in here too? Uh, what's the, oh, this was for um, you guys in uh, the, the Skype chat, but I mean, if, if you think it's relevant to 
I think we've kind of covered it actually um, right. in between the different parts. Pretty much the it's just about the social engineering aspects of it. You can see already how this uh, layout it can be used to socially engineer or program people, uh, the listener. So the uh, oh, before I continue, I forgot to say that the second text, the Philip Tag introductory notes on the semiotics of music, is available for free online. Uh, in PDF format, I checked the other day, and it's actually an updated version. It should be version three by now. I was working with version two at university, so if anyone in the live chat listening wants to check that out, they can. It's all there. That's the entire text that we used at university for semiotics. Was um, now the grain of the voice that uh, the part you just read now uh, to explain that better for people would be uh, my example would be for me personally um i've always kind of like this is going to sound backward but i've always kind of liked bob dylan's voice <laughs> okay that's um, weird he sounds just like that in like person. That. <laughs> <laughs> he got worse as he tried to hold up his end for the cheap uh, guy. But anyhow, go ahead. I was hoping you were going to yeah. use Rod Stewart to go ahead. <laughs> um, so the reason um, with this, so I would describe in these ter this terminology, uh, Bob Dylan's voice as a genotext for me personally, because it's like I say, it's generative or emotive. It engages the listener actively. Uh, because in my case, um, it reminded me of because if we're being fair, he can't sing. <laughs> so for me personally, it sounded like it, the the connotation behind it in a semi semiotic way is that tone of voice tells you he's like one of the common men sort of thing. Like he sort of relates to the common man because he, and also the the genre of folk in his early days. Like it it suited it sat in the right context with folk music. And then having that voice that wasn't this sort of clear, perfect, in tune voice has that kind of um, there's a level of relatability that engages, say, a listener like me that might be from a common, poor, working class background. You can see how if they know this information, then that would be on purpose because how else would if you know 90% or more of the world's population are working class or poor? How do you speak to them? <laughs> and the accent will play into it. Folk music. Where, 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 that's where how. Would you put Rod Stewart? Would he be Gino or Fino in your in your view? Uh, for for me personally, I do like his voice. Um, I I think if I was to sit down and maybe run this analysis through one of his songs, like let's say Maggie May. Yeah, in that circumstance, I'd probably say his voice is a bit of a Gino text. Because it has that kind of, it, it for me personally, anyway, I don't know about anyone else listening, but it has that, uh, there's a uniqueness to his voice, the tone of his voice and his delivery, uh, the, 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 I suppose his diction, or it, in Bob Dylan's case, lack of diction, would, it conveys certain things in a very small way. So someone just lacking diction uh, or mispronunciation or even the accent behind it, like putting on a rural accent would suggest for a lot of people sort of common like a relatable guy like just the average joe from the street sort of that sort of thing so you root for them more the beatles are actually probably let's be honest the most famous example because every time you heard them speak they sounded like well like me <laughs> those lads and from liverpool exactly 
<laughs> yeah. And, um, <laughs> One of the ones in, in the U.S. that's been uh, characterized that way. And again, just a complete construct is um, <laughs> uh, oh, the brain fart. Um, the boss. Um, God, I could never Springs say that guy. Guys, just so annoying, annoying. at every level. Yep, and it is. every song is just hideous. Um, yeah. And <laughs> they love him on the East Coast. <laughs> yeah, they where do. I am, where I am when I went to to high school for a semester here they called him the boss and everyone loved him i never got it man i didn't either that's just no, bad. I've never done it. yeah just bad but he has the, you know he, he definitely has that sort of you know um sort Blue of gino yeah. yeah that sort of the gino text and you know baby we're bombs or like he's taking a dump yeah <laughs> it's like <laughs> oh, he plays the pot well all the time so yeah. <laughs> there's this this very clearly shows there's a reason for that. There's a reason why Kurt Cobain sang with such a gritty voice. Right. Uh, exactly. You know, yeah. it, it's kind of uh, you could <laughs> see how the the programming uh, motif just goes into every aspect of it. Uh, simple things like this, like this genotext idea, uh, you know, like Springsteen with that gritty voice. Uh, Kurt Cobain, same kind of thing. You you could see this, uh, mm-hmm. you know, reflected in all different genres of music and uh, the way that they're their voice comes across it reinforces the idea behind it like uh with cobain for example that that reinforces this whole rise of this genre of music that is the grunge scene in uh, the early to mid 1990s and this is a shift over from what it was previous so you could see how uh you know it's used in the context of switching over uh the social programming for that that generation Definitely switched there because a buddy of mine, a bass player, amazing bass player, was in a band called Bangalore Choir, and they were part of that hair band scene. And uh, their album dropped the exact same day as Nevermind. And uh, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, exactly. Radio was not on your side. And I would suggest (laughs) that Grunt is just a reworking of punk. Yeah, As a matter of fact, I would prove it with the names of the two seminal albums from the two genres. Right. Yeah, he, he his exactly, joke yeah. was that he thinks uh, his joke is he thinks that album went vinyl. Vinyl, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But uh, but yeah, that's his story. Is that uh, it? You know, they're very popular in in Germany. <laughs> but yeah, their album dropped the that same day as, as Nevermind, and that didn't so, go too well. If Cobain's the fake father of fake grunge. Then now you know why he fake swallowed a shotgun, right? Because you can't have the father of a genre being like sixty, you know, yeah, no. and yeah, ruining his own genre. He got to go. And actually, and he he uh, telegraphed um, <laughs> uh, the Cheeto Jesus in, in becoming president, right? Uh, so uh, again, just shows you that that the whole thing is scripted. That, yeah, right. But he but he did. About said, the orange one, I'm guessing. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah exactly. Him hard yeah. enough, we can get yeah. that powder off him. Yeah, he said in like 1991 or 1992 that, oh, we need somebody for president, like, you know, like Donald Trump, right? Because he, he thought that would be super cool. I'm like, oh, come on. Come on, man. <laughs> and it's, it's the youth as well, doesn't it? Because yep. if you think about that, like the, the like we were saying about sex with the voice, uh, not only does it speak to like the, the working class, but it, like I was saying before, you need that youth power behind it to fuel it, to like really drive it up the charts. You need youth behind it. And I think that's what, the use of these voices does like when you think of someone like Janis Joplin. Yep. 
her voice, it, like it, there's, it, you, there's no mistake in it, is there? But isn't that <laughs> remarkable? I mean, at every level, that uh, nobody thinks about it is that uh, the the youth, as you say, the youth movement, they always accept whatever the marketing machine tells them is, you know, anti the ma- anti the man. As long as it's <laughs> right? different than the previous one, because they've right, got to exactly. have, oh, this is your music. That's not mom right. and dad's stupid music. Exactly. Right, exactly. So it's yeah. so you know it's uh, it's so anti-establishment, but it's the establishment selling it. For being anti-establishment, do you know how many millions you... that cost to be able to be on your iPhone right now? But think, oh. think how easy it was back then. You know, everyone listened to the radio, so they played Janis Joplin fifty times a day in every market. Um, it wasn't that difficult a thing to get to catch on. Humor is also a good one, actually. If you think about. Uh, humor and the Beatles. A lot of modern day comedians say that that was sort of the first time they saw comedy was watching, seeing the Beatles interviewed. And when I watch those interviews, to me, because I'm from Liverpool and I know the character of the people who are here, there is an intrinsic sense of humor. And so when I watch them, I just see four Scousers. Scousers are people from Liverpool, by the way. Sorry. <laughs> That's a sort of unofficial. Uh, like Paul McCartney is a scouser or was. Do do they uh, seem genuine though, Mark? Like, do they seem like they're from Liverpool? Like, no, they they really are from yeah, here. That's absolutely. what people are like. They're they're pretty normal. Yeah, I think it was. I think they would probably. That's why they were probably picked to be from Liverpool, as in they were from. They are really are from Liverpool, and I, but I think that plays into why they were picked because they knew that humor would really help because they needed not only. For this to work with youth power, I think with the Beatles, they also needed other generations, like previous generations, to get uh, involved as well. So there's like the iconic moment where John Lennon solidified that with the uh, uh, the Royal Variety Show. When now this is really clever what they did, but it is also typical of Scouse humor. Is um, when they were on stage and they introduced themselves, and he said, "We're the Beatles," and then he said. Um, all the people down here um, clap your hands and then everybody clapped their hands and then he said now all the people up on the balcony rattle your jewellery <laughs> so he's like highlighting <laughs> the, the class divide between yeah, he's mocking society it. so it's it's really clever but my lecturer says he remembers his dad didn't like the Beatles but as soon as he saw that he was like he had a little look at the TV like he's alright that John Lennon lad and that was it it was like he accepted them because he was like he, he gets it. it yeah he's, he's just it. told us the class divide and he highlighted it on tv on the show that everybody's watching because there was only like three channels at the time so and this is right by christmas so everybody's at home from work and everybody was watching it so right. it, it's so perfectly constructed and you know and they all always you know dropped the little truth bombs here and there the supposedly late john lennon uh yeah. famously noted for saying you know i think the world is run by insane people for insane ends and you'd be called insane That's for saying true. so and he said i mean he very clearly uh, said it and yet can't hard to get more compromised than that guy he well, also pointed out that rats uh, stars stars backwards was rats mm. That's right he did that on the air, by the way. With um, what's that guy's name? He's one of your guys, isn't he? Yeah, I can't. Dick Cavett. That's right. Yeah. And uh, if you think about working class hero, uh, I don't know if any of you know this, but John Lennon grew up in a middle class home. So when I listen to that song, you know the final line where he says, "If you want to be a hero, just follow me." 
and he repeats it to my ear because I'm from Liverpool and I know he's not he wasn't raised working class that sounds to me like a bit of scouse humor like a bit of tongue-in-cheek it's very characteristic of people from Liverpool to do that sort of thing like a little bit of tongue-in-cheek humor but people outside of Liverpool of course don't get that especially if they don't understand that he was raised in his auntie's home which is still standing and I've seen it it's a by the, even by today's standard, it's a, it's a nice house. <laughs> well, here's an interesting question for you, uh, since you're from the place that these four lads are supposed to be from. Does Paul McCartney, I should say, does James Paul McCartney seem any different than post-66 Paul McCartney? You mean visually? Uh, Well, visually, I've seen enough pictures to tell me something's up. But, yeah. <laughs> I mean, personality-wise, does Paul McCartney, uh, as, a, uh, as a persona... Does does James Paul McCartney, the young bubblegum one, the one that everybody called the cute beetle, does that guy seem like a typical scouser, as you might say, compared to Paul McCartney who went on to form Wings? The the thing is, it's a Billy Shepherd. I don't know if anyone actually knows, but he is provably a real person, or at least was, um, because you can get his records from back in the day his band was he was it was billy pepper and the pep and his pepper pops yeah and you can still get their vinyls online now which is where they say pepper, what? Pepper. Yeah, mm, what a coincidence, what? Mm. <laughs> coincidence. And you can see his photograph on the cover and someone who guest lectured one of my uh master's degree classes um he actually got to see them perform and um he said that they did cover beatles songs early beatles songs and billy Shepherd did sing the Paul McCartney songs that they played in their set list. Um, and as far as the personality goes, I I don't doubt that Billy Shepherd is from Liverpool. If he isn't from Liverpool, then he's one of the greatest actors ever. And I've seen some of his the movies he acts in. He's not a very good actor. Okay, that's what I was curious <laughs> about. Did they pick somebody... Who who would be able to fit in the if if anything truly did happen to James Paul McCartney did they pick somebody who uh, wouldn't really have to fake that aspect of it which is interesting to hear from somebody because you know, I think you're the only person I've ever known who's from Liverpool so it's the first time yeah, I've been able to ask seems, them. I know Mark legit. is from Manchester I... we've talked about it a little bit but that's obviously yeah. I know how England is uh, people are very. Uh, not necessarily night and day different, but there's little cultural differences between the different major cities. Oh yeah, <laughs> but England and they get angry at each other too. <laughs> if anyone in the live chat is from England, they can probably confirm that people from Liverpool. Now, Liverpool, the city itself, is uh, respected, say, in a historical sense, for partially for the Beatles and the football clubs or soccer clubs, but also because historically we're we're a maritime city. We were the main port for Britain and we were second city of empire. So we're a very historical city. So there's a respect for the city, but as far as the people from the city go, Scousers were not so highly thought of because the media has sort of trained people to think that we steal or uh, I know Baldini is familiar with the Hillsborough disaster, which was blamed on us. This is, there's a problem with Liverpool at the minute with the current narrative going on because we um, don't really, uh, there's not too many problems. I mean, no one's asked me to wear a mask. I've never had to. There's, I've, I see people wearing masks, but they don't care. 
Like they don't seem to buy the narrative too much, or if they do, they don't care if you wear a mask or not. Like there's a problem with Liverpool and that we don't trust government or media because we know that they lie about us because of things <laughs> like the Hillsborough disaster or say Jimmy Savile is a perfect example because Ooh. that's 40 years worth of harboring and facilitating by the government, the mainstream media and the upper echelons of the medical industry. So that's multiple prime ministers and both political parties. So Liverpool has been victim of this through the Hillsborough disaster. So there's a little bit of a, a lot of the country sort of um, it ostracised us a bit as a as a people, not as the actual city location, but as a people. There's a bit of a stereotype that carries weight over a lot of us. But uh, Ireland, Scotland, and Wales are all fine with us. We were actually built by the Welsh. <laughs> that Savile thing, man. That that is proof positive that evil goes on on the inside and is allowed to happen. I mean, just think about the no number doubt. of people that disgusting thing interacted with for decades. Well, yeah, and the, and the level at which he did it. Yeah. Well, all the way up to the uh, right. to the top to the, of the, of the chain yeah, food the chain crown. in England, as far as the, the, the public's crown, concerned. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. He, he hung out with the crown, received gifts from the crown, and God only knows what was going on. And to play but Jim will fix it, right? What show did he host? Apart from Jim will fix it, what what show did he host? Otherwise. Oh, it was the, uh, top of the pops. Top yeah. of the pops, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, the pops, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So which, which musicians... Music is concerned. So when these guys were young, all the all these different musicians, all these guys and gals when they're young, they had to deal with him for decades. Well, yeah, Johnny Rotten, or whatever it is, John Lydon, he yeah. spoke or tried to speak publicly about it at the BBC. And the the audio is available now online. You can hear it now. But this was in the 70s. And he says if he made a movie, the person he'd like to kill in a movie is Jimmy Savile because he gets up to all sorts of seedy business. And then he says, oh, but you probably won't hear that, will you? And she says, the, the lady interviewing him says, well, not if, you know, it's not provable or viable or whatever. And he said, oh, then it probably won't hear then. And then wow. they shelved it. Until after, of course, it all came out. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, look, John Lydon actually tried to tell everyone what was going on. Surprise, surprise, right? And oddly <laughs> enough, though, he suddenly he's like back in the news almost every day he shows up in my news feed like it's somehow relevant. I, uh, again, I, I don't uh, – <laughs> I wouldn't there, count him as a good guy either. Yeah, yeah exactly. Another construct from the get-go. Um, this simple punk band, which is going to be re-echoed by Kurt Cobain's band. They can't even change the name of the album. And there's this <laughs> magical guitarist who actually knew how to play, which was against the rule. I was in a punk band. It was against the rules to know how to play guitar. <laughs> or even tune your guitar. Right. <laughs> and, and that music still holds up, and they still won't admit who was playing the guitar. Yeah, uh, He's a put-up, too. I once actually recorded a band who, who didn't tell me that they wanted to be punk, and we got through, and they said, you know, it, it sounds too clean. I'm like, what? <laughs> what? 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 Hey, this sounds good. You get, you get three truth. chords, they can't be in tune, and you can only have been playing guitar for about six months. Yeah, that's, that's how punk worked. Well, exactly. from a studio point of view, and I'm sure Baldini <laughs> can back me up on this, uh, that sounds really good, especially for the late 70s, that album. The Yeah. Never mind the buzz it cut. Sounds no, it's good well done. Now. It, it, it's it's well double track guitar. Like I can hear it. It sounds good. It's it's done to two inch tape, which means it, it's mm. a high quality natural tape compression. Yeah, it's, it's got that it, sound. 
Well, I don't mean that. I mean, it wasn't done on like 16 track half inch. It was done obviously on two inch, which is the superior uh, that would have been. No, so I'm saying natural them. tape compression. They probably went through um, Neve, Rupert Neve's stuff, or um, Trident. Or it's got a big like in your that. face sound, so you're probably yeah. right there. You, just the whole thing, like that production. It's not slick in the sense that it's got like tons of stuff going on, but overall sound quality. It doesn't sound like a punk record. It sounds like a major mm. label release. Which guess because what? Because it was. It was. Oh, it was. EMI, baby. <laughs> Same with Blondie. I mean, they're supposed to be a punk band. Come on, man. <laughs> you know, you can you can <laughs> listen to that. Like, like, yeah, you you could argue <laughs> that Blondie started rap. Actually. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, yep, yeah you exactly. could make that argument. Man argue. on Mars went to car, you know, eating cars and snorting bars. Eating cars or whatever and, the hell yeah, she exactly. <laughs> yeah, she did that. Um, but uh, um, she was. But now punk he only eats Generation X. She she was punk in the beginning. Right. Um, at this and point, guys, I'm going to uh, I'm going to have to bow out. Um, just not feeling well. But I, I did uh, want to say that uh, we should have uh, Mark back. He's got a, a phenomenal. Uh, this is just one of the topics. He's got a number of um, uh, really good um, papers on, including um, the Gaelic and some background into um, not only uh, linguistics uh, and um, linguistic determinism, but a number of uh, these interesting topics. So I'd love to have you back. Um, guys, I'm going to have to bow out. Really sorry. Um, just Thank you. <laughs> not, not holding up. Not holding up tonight. And uh, my apologies. <clears throat> Take care. You have a good night, my friend. Yeah, I have. I have some good days and then some not so good days. And I had a few good days in a row, and this is not one of them. So uh, I apologize. I'll um, everybody have a, a great evening, and I'll see you again later. Thanks. Stay <clears throat> Thanks very much. <laughs> well, we got about twenty minutes left, Mark. What else do you want to get in here? Since uh, this is this is definitely your topic. Uh, I'd love to hear some more about what what you want to get in as far as symbolism and all that. Uh, we we could probably touch on modern music. We've been talking a lot about the Beatles, but good God, the the crap that's being spit out today, and it may not even necessarily be the music so much. Although I did a show last year with Mark Devlin where he he threw four modern songs at me, and he wanted me to help break them down with him uh, from a studio person's point of view because I'm I'm a nerd about like studio yeah. stuff and gear and all that. I just love that shit. And the one thing that was common between all four songs, and they were all within the last few years, was they all had this weird drone to them. Like, I noticed it had a very hypnotic effect, which a lot of older music mm-hmm. did not. They might have a flow, like, say, Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon, might have this ebb and flow kind of thing going on, That was, but it was, it was more of a beautiful thing. It was, you know, you can get carried along with that kind of thing. But these things had, a, all of them had a, this, this drone, like it was trying to hypnotize you, the way the beat was, and all that kind of thing. So maybe we could touch on the way they do things in the, in the modern world. I, I yeah, noticed the lack of human touch. That's the biggest thing I notice in modern music is there's no handmade feel to any of it. That yeah, but like the uh, I think when we had the the semiotic terminology for anaphones, uh, the different uh, like sonic anaphone, kinetic, tactile, or composite, uh, some of those I think would be interesting to look at music over maybe the last five or ten years leading up to a, a time of social distance and to see if maybe the lyrics left out or even the music but mostly the lyrics left out the idea of touch or being wow. close to someone or uh, you know maybe the voices sound like muffled like you know, like mumble rap an entire subgenre <laughs> that's like <laughs> someone wearing a mask to you. <laughs> Bob Dylan was mumble rap for boomers <laughs> <laughs> well when you think about it I think I've said this to Baldini before um that this has been known for a very long time when you think that you can't no 
nobody would have accepted, say, uh, going from Billy Holiday to Mumble Rap in just one jump, like within the space of one year. Society right. would have been like, no, we're not accepting this at all. This is where the Overton window comes in. Well, I don't think it would have been taken so, seriously. It would have been like, is this a joke? Exactly. Because there was so still musicianship all the way up until... Eh, like, really, the past 20 years is where you really saw the musicianship take a nosedive. Because even in the 90s, you had people still... Like, you had bands like Dream Theater coming out and stuff like that that actually did, right. did okay, and they're phenomenal musicians. They're all Berkeley musicians. So it was this weird mix, but then once you get into the 2000s, it starts plummeting down into everybody sitting in front of a laptop and pushing buttons at this point. I think modern music maybe got... Uh derailed a bit by hip-hop because i've noticed when and this isn't to hate on hip-hop there are some songs i like called rap hip-hop um and i'm sure people listening there's a lot of hip-hop and rap songs you like like none of what i'm saying is uh, i'm not in any way trying to tell people what they kind of can't listen to like if you like a song you like a song that's just you know that's just it's fine but i think with rap and hip-hop because when you look at the progression of music over since say the early 1900s when recorded music started um beginning and taking um taking large portions of the population through radio listening in um over time you see that there's a it's almost like they're slowly pulling things out of the music um till eventually like they would take out like crow pointed out the, the classical music is so much more complex so much more intricate and there's more attention to detail there and then with recorded music i mean the song length alone of a uh, the average track would be maybe three minutes there's already something that's been removed and then when you say before about most songs being three or four chords well something else has been removed then hasn't it and then harmonies when you think about punk rock they took out the, the vocals so they've removed harmony and then maybe even when you get to rap and hip-hop well, where the hell is melody gone uh, you've got rhythm. A lot of rap and hip hop has very good rhythm because they still need something in there that's familiar to the listeners here to draw people in. Well, but, do you notice how clever they were with uh, rap and hip hop early on? Uh, I guess it would be more considered hip hop. How they were sampling some of the best productions of the '70s from R and B and or disco. They were taking some of the best of the best of the best that was ever put out in that kind of uh, thing, taking those beats and some of those sounds. And what was the other thing? Not only were they getting excellent production, they were getting things that would have been recognizable to a lot of people. Exactly. They needed something familiar to the audience, like maybe a like you said, excellent pr production and they needed rhythm they needed something musical about it because uh, they, they weren't able to jump from one thing straight to like billy holiday to mumble rap they couldn't make that leap so they have to go okay what can we take out gradually over time so each generation the youth can kind of get behind it and then over time you can slowly just remove some of the musical aspects that actually make it musical music. to begin with like harmony and melody is there any yeah, exactly. like, is that around anymore i, I mean it, at best we could I call a lot of modern music poetry to a beat maybe would better describe it yeah and i think that's why rap and hip-hop was probably the sort of like the the one they were betting on where they were like this will be it and that's why they got all the high production and all the uh the rhetoric that goes along with it you know this idea that they were just like um I don't know if this will get you censored at all, but the sort of BLM 
Black Lives Matter. Well, it's sort exactly of, it, right? They're yeah, promoting the, they're promoting it, the core. Of course, that's exactly what it is. Um, so all the same white matter. privilege. <laughs> While every hip hop band that made it was getting just so much money thrown at them for production value, and then afterwards, like it's black empowerment, and you know, it, white people have white privilege, and you know, we it, it, it was I, NWA singing "Fuck the Police." And well, ha- look where it's <laughs> gone. Now we've got Snoop Puppy Dog has gone from supposed gangster to game show host to pushing the mask mandate uh, and getting tested on a uh, main mainstream, regularly aired TV show. Uh, He's on TV adverts over here as well. For uh, I don't know if you have Just Eat, the fast food delivery service. I don't know. <laughs> TV adverts for Just Eat. <laughs> Well, I think that guy's doing anything to, to make... I don't know why he would need the money, but it seems like he's doing anything for a buck anymore. Well, he wanted to be Could Snoop Lion, didn't he? But he didn't get promoted. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a lot of those old older rappers who are now like my age or older, which is you know pushing 50 or older. People like uh, Ice-T, Ice Cube, like a lot of these guys that were like the most vile in the 90s have now turned around and they they have freaking acting careers and all that. They have more acting credits than they've got out. Right, they have more acting credits than they have albums. That's what's funny about it. Yeah, I can tell you why Snoop is famous. Very few people know why. He's Dutch. Um, There's the line. But Uh it would be interesting to do another one is the early guys and the most violent band gangster rap i forget what mw i don't know what it was straight out of Compton. yeah that's he dies he dies of a fake disease that doesn't exist he dies of aids (laughs) um all the way back there so it shows you you the construct Uh, (laughs) i'm actually glad you brought up someone mentioned iced tea a moment ago that reminds me of a little uh another part of this uh semiotics here it's a very small part it's called a um it would be like a double entendre, so a double utterance is the the word we use, or the, the phrase double utterance, because Ice T had a song called, I think it's called "Played Yourself," which we looked at at university, and it's a, I think it's like his big hit, if he had any. That was his big hit, and um, he samples James Brown um, in the background and double utterance. What that means is, like you said, a lot of rap and hip hop was taking samples from artists from the past so what that does is reinforce their message because they're tying in an old generation into a new movement so they're not only getting the youth the modern youth behind the new genre they're also getting uh say the boomer generation with uh like sampling zeppelin or someone like that you can draw zeppelin into it like black dog got sampled quite a lot but with um you can pinpoint a specific demographic so that Ice T song played yourself. They he samples, or I don't know if he made the decision, but whoever made the decision decided James Brown because James Brown it ties into a specific demographic and age group, doesn't it? Of American population, so the African American population of a, a previous generation, because the message of the song is he's basically listing off like crimes that like sort of average everyday crimes that. Um, say like the, the the narrative that police would arrest uh, african-americans for but they wouldn't arrest white people for and his uh, so the message of the song is basically saying you know if, if you're doing this stuff and you know that the police 
are going to pick you up for this, but they wouldn't do that to a white guy. You've played yourself because you already know and you still did it. So you played yourself. So he's kind of got like a, it's almost like a positive message. Like there's a moral to the song, but the having James Brown behind it is saying, not only am I saying you played yourself, but James Brown, you know, the godfather of soul, he's saying you played yourself. There's almost like that little reinforcement of a, uh, iconic voice from the past or an influential voice from the past to be like who's important to that area of uh, to that demographic saying like like I'm not just this new guy spouting some shit about you playing yourself but the godfather of soul also thinks you're playing yourself like that's kind of the connotation behind sampling a song like that and that would be called a double utterance and, and it, it also fits the Tavistock well, it all, yeah, I was going to say that. It fits the Tavistock rule. Um, you've got to remove variety, which is seen in, obviously, cars and the colors of cars today. But the other thing you have to do is take a section of time previous, which is why we have the decades, and loop it back. Um, so not only have you reduced variety for something totally new to come along, uh, you've done all the things you're mentioning, and you're also reducing the variety, and then you're looping back um, so that the time you have now is not totally unique and progressive on its own, but looped backwards into a thing that's already been. Mm -hmm. Tying in as many people as you can to the whatever the social engineering is you want to put out there or the message, whatever message you want to communicate. If you can take in as many listeners as possible, that'd be a way to do it, wouldn't it? Is appeal to what they liked when they were young. Like you said before about nostalgia, if you can, like that would also the James Brown track being in the background might provoke nostalgia and do the same thing as what John Lennon did when he said, rattle your jewelry, the previous generation go, Oh, he's all right. Then. So the, the same thing happens with someone like Ice T they'll hear that James Brown track and be like, Oh, he's all right. Then. <laughs> yeah. It's just kind of a, a wink and a nod to the, the previous generation in a certain way, uh, you know, to try and gain their approval um, in a, certain type of degree here and you know it also like i said it'll intrinsically connect the two generations together and uh you know that's an important idea too because uh not only do you have the old school thought uh you know uh, feeding into this whole thing you also have the the new generation the young energy feeding into it so it's one of those things where it does invoke the nostalgia type feelings in the older generation when they recognize that beat. And a good example of this, I would say, is, uh, you know, Vanilla Ice, Ice, Ice Baby. That's a good one for <laughs> many of us, uh, in, you know, in our generation that um, most of us on this panel are. Uh, you know that from the Queen song as well. It's the same thing. He sampled uh, a portion of the Queen song. So it kind of, it, it, you know, pulls these ideas together in people's minds. Uh, and that's that's the whole thing. It'll incorporate that nostalgia type programming in people as well and pull it forward into the new generation and maybe making the, the new uh, generational music more acceptable to the older crowd as well. But so that, becomes, that's why that becomes the proof, too, though, Wayne, if you think about it, because we have a thing called copyrights. We're all aware of it if we create on yep. YouTube. So mm. some somehow, for some reason, all these guys were just allowed to rip music and sample it. And it made the news here and there. I think Ice Ice Baby was one of the big examples. But the point is, there was a rule where if you did any more than a 10 second sample to further a narrative or something, you're infringing a copyright. That's and so right. for, for rap. 
the proof of the construction is that all the law, it's like the mask right now. It's against every law and every right you have, but that's all been suspended, which proves the construction. And that alone, the sampling of older popular music into rap is proof of the construction. They used uh, they used to go to eight seconds of a sample and loop it because technically that was legal. Um, that was also the limitations the of the equipment at the time because I, I lived through but all it, that. that yeah. That doesn't meet the spirit of the law either, though, because once you take eight eight seconds and play it twice, you're up to sixteen seconds. Yeah. The the original <laughs> was was a one time reference, so no matter how you slice it, it comes up peanuts. That's yeah, just yeah. how they got away with it was just doing that eight seconds and then looping it, and that's how they for a while got away with it that way. But I don't I don't think it lasted too long. I, th- I think it just lasted long enough for them to do what they needed to do and then after that i think was when you started getting collaborations like aerosmith and run dmc and that kind of did the same thing didn't it merges audiences what a, what a sellout yep. that was <laughs> that's also when yeah, the whole I'm... digital uh, everyone throwing a fit about digital at that point when they started realizing that things could be ripped off and and record labels weren't getting paid for shit yeah it's an interesting uh contradiction when you look at it when you you combine these musical styles that way and that uh, collaboration between run dmc and aerosmith really kind of changed the face of popular music at that point uh that was like a, a very groundbreaking uh collaboration that they did and it, it uh, brought these generational factors together in a way and uh you know we we saw what that uh produced that was one of the big things that really pushed forward the whole hip-hop uh, movement, uh, that type of a, a genre in music into the popular culture. Uh, that made it, it mainstreamed it, let's put it that way. That that was the, the video and the song that really mainstreamed hip-hop in the American uh, pop culture right then in that era. And from there, you see how the, they shifted the Overton window further and further and further and used these sampling ideas even more so or these collaborations with other artists even more so. And from that, uh, we get to where we're at today, where, you know, in my opinion, a lot of the hip hop and the, the rap music is a, a far cry from being actually, you know, uh, how do I say this? <laughs> yeah, music. How do it, I say this without being... Well, I mean, if, if there's no melody and there's no harmony, I think you could use a dictionary to find out whether it's true or not. Right. And that would be why they need um, collaborations. Right? I just thought that must have been a funny um, obstacle behind the scenes for people like Tavistock with this setup when originally someone like Elvis Presley could blend multiple genres into his one sound. And that way he could hit so many demographics at once. But then obviously if your aim is to start taking things away from the music over time, you're going to be left with no choice but to sample or feature a guest artist or collaborate in some way. Because if if you're taking out parts of the music, you're not really going to be able to tick the boxes of multiple genres, are you? (laughs) <laughs> no i mean eventually what do you, you your genre is a tone you know like each band gets a tone is that where we're headed oh look this guy used distortion on his tone <laughs> i hope not just a whisper track <laughs> well we're winding down here mark is there any last points you want to get in before we uh, sign off i think that might be good i think i i just heard rose's voice and i've it reminded me, I was like, I think I just spoke over Rose the whole time. 
Oh, well, I just, I'm hearing some background noise. Are you guys hearing? No. Well, oh. I... No. Shoot. I don't know what's going on. It must be me then. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's, uh, think about signing off. Crow, would you want to talk a minute about the, the episode we just dropped a little while ago? Uh, one or uh, two ninety nine is up live. Um, I put it up a little early because we've got a short month here. Clive DeCarl's back. It's a really good episode. Uh, talks about selenium, um, how it relates to a lot of things, addiction being one of those things. Um, and you know, Clive seems to have helped a lot of people. He's helped me in more ways than than I can count. Uh, what I learned from David Avocado Wolf and Clive uh, has people I'm responsible for recognizing their children and i can't tell you how big a deal that is uh clive simply by turning me on to magnesium saved me from a surgery on my hand uh it goes on and on these these things that they're doing with products from nature it's a big deal so we'll continue to cover it but uh the episode we just did with clive i don't know jason i'd say it's as good as any we've done with him oh yeah no that was that was lots of info packed into there yep so anyhow 299's live Oh, and by the way, our one's on YouTube for a change. For a change, um, yeah. Yeah, we'll see if it we'll see if it lasts. <laughs> I, I had to work half a day to get it there, but we'll see. Well, we thought we'd take a chance with this one because we didn't say anything too crazy. I guess Co- Covidius minimus. <laughs> yeah, we didn't really go there until hour two when we started talking about the immune system and all that. But uh, all right, that's it. And then of course, three hundred. Crow and I are working on uh, hopefully a, a humdinger for that one. Now it yeah. should be a humdinger if we can pull it all together. Uh, we're going to do a 299.5 in between with another real-life case of a registered nurse who stood up and walked the walk. Um, so there's a lot of women standing up in a world full of left showing us some right. Um, so we'll run 299.5 as we wrap up for 300. And 300, we're going to try to pull so much of what we've done together. Um, to show you how big the damn blanket is, how long the blanket's been around, and how much of the world it covered. You want a hint? All of it. A damn long time ago. <laughs> as long as we can see backwards. How's that? Um, Definitely. That's, that's where we live. Rose, what are you and the Great Baldini doing tomorrow? Oh, we are doing the Poppycock Report, Episode 7 of Season 2 at 6 a.m. Pacific, 9 a.m. Eastern. Hope to see you all there. Wayne, you got anything you want to tell anybody about? Uh, yeah, I actually just recorded yesterday with a uh, a pleasant lady named uh, Judith Quoba, and uh, her YouTube channel is called Night Flight. If people want to check that out, uh, my interview with her will be posting on there sometime soon. I'm not sure exactly what day she's uh, putting that up, but uh, we just recorded that yesterday. So uh, that was a good conversation, interesting conversation. Uh, also, uh, people could check out, I will be uh, posting part three of my Unseen Forces uh, series uh, on my YouTube channel, which is Alchemical Tech Revolution. Um, so people could look forward to that being posted here sometime within the next uh, five or six days or so. I would say probably sometime before then. But, you know, I, I, I try not to put a time frame on myself for these things because uh you know i I tend to be busy at times so it's hard for me to really uh you know plan on on posting at a particular day or time so but uh that's all i got going on for now and mark are you going to start getting out into the uh the wide world of podcasting and interviews and things and stuff i hope to i know the amount i've spoke tonight probably suggests that i'm confident but i'm 
genuinely nervous the whole time and introverted, very introverted. So this Baldini's probably said, um, but it, I think what I've got here is probably important enough to at least. I, I I'm a writer, so I like I'm unemployed currently, but I I do write and I'm about to be published. So I, this I uh, the published writing will be fiction, but what I'm doing at uh, at the moment that we read tonight that I typed up was some examples of what um, I send Baldini all the time. He mentioned before that I have a little bit of knowledge of the Gaelic language because I'm trying to teach myself Irish Gaelic and Spanish. And um, I do a lot of reading. Anything you guys mention on Crow Triple Seven, if I can get hold of it, I, I do and I read it in physical copy as well to make sure that I have it. <laughs> um, wow, so and Gaelic? Hopefully. Yeah, I'm... I've, I decided because I have, uh, so I have red hair and green eyes. I have Gaelic heritage. <laughs> so um, I decided uh, to learn Gaelic, and then I learned that Scottish Gaelic was revised um, and Irish Gaelic was made illegal um, by royalty, English royalty. So I thought, well, Irish Gaelic will be the older form because Scottish has been revised. So I decided to teach myself, and it's unbelievably difficult, but there's some really... Uh, interest in literal translations. The basic translations are just straightforward, like Dearith means hello, but its literal translation means God to you. <laughs> give a, give us a full sentence in Gaelic. I'm kind of curious to hear the accent. Oh, a full sentence. Garav uh, Maagat would be thank you, or uh, may good be at you is the literal translation. How do you so say crow on Gaelic? Oh, you know what? I was actually genuinely going to look that up earlier so I could tell you when I was on. Uh, and I've not. Yeah. I know what raven is because I did a little study on there's a weird link between the symbology between the raven and the cormorant in uh, the Gaelic translation. And it went down a weird road of like the just sacred geometry and to do with English cities and stuff like that, with the the language connects the two. It's almost like if you know Gaelic, then you would see the symbology. And so the raven would be uh, fiach dove. <laughs> Close to crow. <laughs> well, that's very interesting. And I would venture to say, if you, you uh, look further down the road, uh, studying the Gaelic language, you'll find ties to the language of the gypsies, which is another interesting crossover, mm. uh, which relates back to uh, what they call the green language or the language of the birds mm. or, you know, the many different other uh, names that they, they give this uh, sort of secretive language um, used by many of the people at the highest, most levels of the secret society. So that would be, in my estimation, why they would have maybe tried to ban like the Irish form of Gaelic and that yeah. kind of thing and how it transformed. It was made illegal and all of the texts and uh, scrolls were all, uh, uh, you've heard of a book burning, but there were book drownings. <laughs> of Gaelic texts. Well, I, I, I got to So are you actually reading the shows in Gaelic and where does that go? The shows? Sorry, what do you mean? Were, were you saying that you were transcribing the shows uh, that we do into Gaelic? No, no. When I listened, I decided to teach myself Gaelic. And then I noticed you mentioned a few times about, like, say, Kennedy. Uh, so Ken being head or one, like the uh, one being like not the number, but 
the individual and so I thought there's something to it. And I actually sent Jason an email a few weeks back about Keanu Reeves. You might remember it, Jason. Mm, yeah. And Keanu Reeves is actually uh, a Gaelic sentence means which means um one or with you Keanu Reeve it's not spelt the same but phonetically it's identical <laughs> and it means what wow. one one with you uh one or with you and the you is plural you so the decision he has in the matrix of red pill blue pill is do you want to be the one or do you want do you want to be a part of the you which is plural you <laughs> so that's what his name is a phonetic twin with in Gaelic, Irish Gaelic. So his real name directly correlates into the Matrix. Amazing. It's weird, isn't it? <laughs> very interesting. Well, we'll have to do this again, Mark, because uh, you, you seem to be a fountain of knowledge of very interesting things. And this is a subject we're all interested in. Uh, music pretty much touches everybody. Um, because of my age, I'm a little... Like, you guys genuinely in the past year have completely turned my mind around of you keep saying be higher minded and it because i had a crash at the end of 2019 where like my mental and physical health crashed and that's when i started listening to crow triple seven and genuinely since then i've picked up reading and writing and tried to get myself published and i've been doing so much research using everything i was taught at university and that's kind of what's led me to this moment now, sending Baldini as much as I know, because, or as much as I think I know, maybe, because, you know, I'm behind a lot of people in this community because I'm 28 years old. <laughs> I've only got so much experience. <laughs> well, that would show me that you're ahead of the curve, though, because the average person that gets into the this quote-unquote truth movement type stuff doesn't really start till usually around their mid-30s. So you're a bit ahead of the game as far as that Imagine goes. being in the millennial generation as well and having this knowledge and not relating to anyone in your generation. <laughs> uh, that's got to be tough, man, because I know... People taking you know, selfies on TikTok. Hey, man, I, I know some dirt that's older than me, but I don't relate to very many people either, so it's not my <laughs> yeah, it's, That's something that crosses generations, I think, uh, that not being able to relate to people. So, <laughs> so uh, also, Wayne, relate. I wanted to say your channel is brilliant anyone who's not subscribed to wayne's alchemical tech revolution go there because i just listened to the melchizedek if i'm pronouncing that correctly yep. the manly p hall text it's yep. that i bought the book afterwards and was just like what the hell <laughs> oh it's very eye-opening for sure uh i've read a few you see, i, I, I found a great. couple real real doozies too that i'm gonna be get, uh digging into so so thanks all of you for genuinely the past year like even the lockdown yeah i've told baldini this past year that that has been the best year of my life just because i've figured out this is what like i know who i am now and i know what's going on around i have a firm foundation even though like i said i'm unemployed and circumstances technically aren't ideal because of what's going on but you guys are the real deal (laughs) so thanks very much well, I'll make you a deal. We'll provide free hour twos, which we don't do to anyone for our own protection. If you put it into Gaelic and want to put it out to that community, because I happen to know there's not that many people in the world that speak Gaelic. And I also oh. happen to know <laughs> that it's a very independent minded community. So the odds that censorship would come back on me are slim. I would accept that, but I genuinely I'm not fluent in Gaelic. I've 
been teaching if, myself. If the day comes. If, if the, the day, day comes. Oh, yeah. If I can speak fluently, fluent Gaelic, I'll, I'll do it. It's a, it's a, if you try learning a few sentences, the, there's an app for on, online, actually. You can get it online called Duolingo, which is really good for being able to hear what the language sounds like. Um, you can identify straight away this is like insane for a language in the British Isles. <laughs> it's it's a very difficult language. <laughs> oh, you know, it just occurred to me, Rose, we should have mentioned uh, um, Melanie. Um, I'm sorry, not Melanie, Beth Martin. Oh yes, you were just you were just on her show. Let me go ahead and grab the link and I'll put it in chat so people can go check out that interview. And I also just posted Wayne's channel as well so people can subscribe. Crow did a live stream right, well, and they well, predominantly well, talked about uh, the law and everything, right? Um, you're talking about me and Beth Martin. Um, I don't know. Rose was there. What the hell did I talk about, Rose? It was law. <laughs> I can't I can't keep track anymore. It's too much. It was, it was primarily low. on law. We do a few things. I just, yeah. I'm, just, I'm adding that link course now. as well. Beth course is really good. Uh, the primal power course that Beth has just delivered for the first time. I was just on it. And so anyone listening, it's worth parting with fiat currency that's got no intrinsic value for. <laughs> we just did something on that too. The moment yeah. you said intrinsic, I remembered a title I wrote sometime in my life. Okay, Al. There it is. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's going to do it, guys. We went a little over. No biggie. But uh, thanks for being here. Sorry about last week. We had some things come up. Oh, and that's then, okay. uh, that'll do Bold that. Baldini said it's fine. Don't worry. <laughs> me. I'm genuinely flattered. <laughs> uh, by the way, Mark, do you have any contact info you want to give anybody? Or are you just uh, just kind of hanging out for now? Uh, yeah, people want these uh, PDF documents that we've used tonight. Um, you can contact me at um, markfrancisbloom at gmail.com. All right, so that's the documents we went. Well, he's got four documents he sent over. We only read from one of them, so there you go. Yeah. All right, guys. Thank you so much for being here. We'll uh, we'll see you again next week. Uh, this was a great chat, and uh, this is one of my favorite subjects, by the way. So we'll definitely do more on music because I, music touches everybody. Let's just be honest. In some way, shape, or form, everybody's got a thing for music, whether it's reminding them of one their young. language. <laughs> yeah, it really is. No matter what style you're into or styles, uh, you're gonna feel something. And to to hear what really goes into it, especially anything that's in the mainstream. Uh, it's, it's quite a learning experience, but all right, guys, I'm going <laughs> to sign off. Thanks everybody. Have a great night. Cheers.